0: Before the Buddha was awakened there were already many spiritual traditions and religions in India and in the world. So people were familiar with the practice of dana, keeping of precepts, celibacy, familiar with the practice of meditation, development of samadhi, right up to the level of Arupajana. All of this would be put into perspective after the Buddha's awakening in the sense that it's all a cause for worldly happiness, lokiya, sukha, these are all loka dhamma, loka dhammas. And the Buddha's unique contribution to the world is the teaching on the conditioned nature of existence, As Lumpur Buddha Dasa used to say, Itta Pachayata, it's like the law of conditionality. Or if you reduce it down particularly to human beings, and the causes of suffering, which is what the Buddha was concerned with, mainly concerned with in his teaching, and paticca dependent origination in forward and reverse order. How dukkha arises, how suffering arises for humans through different causes and conditions. <coughs> and then how it ceases through the removal of those causes and conditions. With this that arises. If this ceases, that ceases. And this is what defines the Buddhist teachings. That they're not teachings that just lead to Lokya Sukha, worldly happiness, but lead to Lokutara Dhamma, the happiness that's beyond the world, Nibbana, the deathless, and the result of penetrating the four noble truths and is that the mind understands how to remove the causes of suffering. And thereby remove future, the birth, birth, aging, death, and more suffering. So then, these other practices and parts of the path say the dhāna, the Sila, the Samadhi, and the Panya, the wisdom all take on a slightly new meaning once they're part of the path that leads all the way to the end of suffering to the Lokutara Dhamma. So the practice of dhāna in the Buddhist teachings has a slightly different context to general practice of dhāna, which obviously can be found uh, throughout the world. Or the practice of the precepts and when they're part of the path, a causal factor for the ending of suffering, then they become an integral part of the path. They take on a new meaning. Same with Samadhi. It's a basis for developing the calm that supports insight. So that means that studying of the Vinaya, studying of suttas, listening to Dhamma. Again, all of this takes on a new, deeper meaning when it's seen as part of the path that leads to Nibbāna, the end of suffering. In the beginning of our practice, reading, listening, may have uh, maybe a course of in- source of inspiration, gives us knowledge, understanding. It's only when you see it as part of the path that leads all the way to the end of suffering, that it may- <coughs> maybe takes on, uh, becomes something of real importance. And then even, say, Lumpur used to say even small rules, secular waters and minor rules of training when you see them as part of the whole that leads to the end of suffering even they are important nothing is unimportant when we're talking about training the human mind in this path as we know since even the time of the buddha and right up to the present day, um, sometimes there's been differences of opinion, not differences of emphasis in the practice between individuals, sangha and laity. Sometimes talk about the, the scholars versus the meditators, and you certainly um, see that in a Buddhist country like Thailand, but in other countries as well. In the old days, particularly, there was a perceived strong difference between the scholar monks and the forest monks focused more on meditation. They didn't always see eye-to-eye, or at least the ones with more dust in their eyes didn't see eye-to-eye. And something, sometimes would look down on each other for different reasons. The scholars would look down on the meditating monks as not really knowing what the Buddha taught, not being able to quote the Buddha maybe. The forest monks often looking back at the scholars as knowing the word of the Buddha but not practicing it, not keeping the Vinaya maybe, not meditating, not realizing the Dhamma. Obviously we need both for the full path of practice to Nibbāna to be preserved in the world. We have to thank the scholars for preserving the texts, helping to make them understandable, explaining them. We have to thank the meditators for you might say proving that the practice works and being able to give that special insight based on human experience of the practice, the path of practice, sharing that back with the world. My teacher, uh, my upajaya, Lumpur Mahamon, was one of Lumpur Chah's senior Disciples, he uh, took over the role of uh, being upajaya when Lumphochara became sick. So he was my upajaya at Wambapong. He often had a lot of insights into this theme: the differences between, say, study monks and practice monks because he himself had spent his first seventeen reigns as a study monk, learning the sutras, the Vinaya uh, from the texts and then learning Pali up to the sixth grade out of the nine, total of nine grades. He was a sixth grade Pali scholar and very well known for his skills in Pali and in teaching. But then he had some insights into his own lack of development of the practice and was drawn to come and live with Lumpur Chā. But even then he had plenty of doubts about Lumpur Chā, his own ability to practice and teach, and the monks living with him. He brought these doubts or even suspicions with him. But he related on many occasions how a lot of these suspicions were actually unfounded and dispelled in different ways. He said when he came to Wapapong, he did have a, a strong conceit based on his scriptural knowledge. I know, I remember and he was a very good eloquent speaker he was sharp, witted so he was able to answer questions, give teachings very well. And he wasn't sure that these forest monks really knew their stuff, So he was quite conceited. So one of the first things Lumpur Chah said to him when he arrived was, don't bring your ceremonial fan, because he already had the fan of being a maha, a sixth grade Pali scholar, don't bring your fan, your status and your conceit to the practice you have to set them aside. So he already was pointing to one of the issues that Venerable Mahamon had already considered. But Lumpur received him with metta and encouragement. He said one of his first teachings was from a, actually from a very junior monk, Lung Dalat, who was still around when I was a young monk, an old, older man who, whose wife died when he was a layman. He had a, had a wife, family, his wife died and he was, had a lot of grief. He came to see Lumpur Chah. And Lumpur Chah gave him teachings how to accept dukkha, the suffering of life, aging, sickness and death gave him a, a famous metaphor that you can't make the Menam moon, the, the moon river that runs through Ubon, you can't make it flow backwards upstream. It's the nature of the water to always flow downstream. And you can't bring back the dead, the, the ones you love, they die, they age, they die. You can't change that. So teaching Lung Dalar, he, uh, inspired him enough to come and keep the precepts as a layman and then he became a monk. And then so he was one day he was about two rains and Jim Maharmon was seventeen rains, and they were both assigned to come onto Lumpurchar's shorter Bindabhata route as he was getting older. And one day they are waiting at uh, one of the old mango trees in the forest. And while they were waiting for Lumpur Chah to arrive, Chen mahamon had noticed that it was in fruit, the mango tree, and there were lots of ripe mangoes. And he couldn't resist just touching one of the mangoes to see how ripe it was while it was still on the tree. And he noticed the two pancala talat looking at him with fierce, critical eyes. So he said, what's the problem? And Umta said, why are you asking me what the problem is? You're the maha, you're the one with all the the knowledge, the study, you should know. But Jim Mahamon, he had some idea why he might be looking at him critically, but he hadn't studied the Vinaya or practiced the Vinaya in a very refined way. Uh, so he wanted to know more and um, later he asked, I think he asked another monk what was the problem, the other monk, mm-hmm. uh, based on the practice and the study of the Pubhasika, the Vinaya commentary that Lumpacha had picked up from uh, one of the, the Cam- old Cambodian monks he'd met on Tudong, recommended it. and It became a mainstay of Vinaya teaching in Wat Bupong. And There's a lot of explanation of very minor practices and rules that became very much part of the practice at Wat Bapong. So one of those rules is that uh, fruit, while it's still on a tree, it's what they call Anamasa. It's one of the things you shouldn't touch, like, say, money, or musical instrument, or a woman's clothing, or something like that. So later he realized why Lung Dalat had given him the, the eye. And he said a lot of his time at Wabupong in the first year was like that, learning through experience. Even junior monks, very junior monks, had already been trained in the Vinaya, telling him, or just giving him the eye, or whatever, pointing out where he may be going wrong in his own practice. Baja Mahamon had that love of learning, not only from the text but now from experience. So he was always keen to ask and find out why, what, the, where's the problem, where's the issue. He was always seeking more information so he could train himself. And uh, later on, he discussed that again with Lugdalat. And Lung Dalat was also a very humble monk, even though he's an older man. And he said, Oh, please forgive me, I wasn't being critical of you out of anger. It was just because of our training in the Vinaya. And then Yamaha said, Oh, don't worry, I understand. And he said, Lugdalat's eye, giving him the eye when he was making a small mistake. He said when he realized the mistake in the Vinaya, it's like he had, his mind had been like a big balloon full of conceit and knowledge and then Lungta Alat giving him the eye was like puncturing the balloon so all the air came out. He said this Tuvasa monk managed to depuff him. He was puffed up and he managed to depuff him. All the air. Full Hot air was expelled from his mind in that particular instance. He said, "One of the ways he was learning is he said this: you come into the practice, you have kilesa, you have defilements, but you have to work within your defilements." So he said, said "Like you." You're giving up your attachment to food, but you, you eat, eat food every day, so you're using food to give up your attachment to food. And you contemplate your food with mindfulness, with wisdom. So you eat food every day and you can't avoid it, but it's actually for the ending of your craving and attachment for food. Or even conceit. You bring your conceit with you into the robes, into the practice. But it's conceit that then leads you on to want to know, want to practice, want to get the better of your defilements. So it's conceit that can lead to the end of conceit. Practices like this, we always pointed out one of the things you can't use to end One defilement you can't use to end the defilements is a lust. You can't use your attraction to the opposite sex to get beyond it. It's just something you have to stay away from. It's too hot, it's too strong, the desire. So you also have to use wisdom in the practice. You can use food to to abandon your attachment to food, or conceit to abandon your attachment to conceit, but you can't abandon your attachment to women by indulging in in sexual behavior, say. There's another time he mentioned, he, again, he had been used to using money as a study monk. Again, the Vinaya was much looser in this study monasteries and those monks, generally they had to rely on some money donations to keep themselves going. You might say the system was different. They needed to buy books and utensils for study. They needed to, to support themselves. There was no central store or central fund for them. So that's always been the style in the study monasteries. So then coming into Wabapong one day he sat down, this time with a monk, more senior, and he just brought up the question, he really wanted to find out why we don't use money. And so he brought up the question, you know, we, we, maybe it would be convenient if we had money to use. And the first response he got was a very gruff one, he said, well, the Buddha, the Vinaya, states we can't use, handle money. Isn't that good enough? But he understood that point, but he wanted to really understand his own doubts and get beyond them. So he just, kind of in a slightly provocative way, kept asking. So he said, well, it could be convenient if you had money. Say like, say you want to visit your relatives. If you had some money, you could pay for the truck, the bus to get home. The answer he got was, "Well, did you ordain just to visit your relatives?" I thought, "We're homeless ones. We're here to leave leave the world behind for nibbana." We persisted and said, "Well, saying one of our relatives was really sick, it'd be useful to have some money so we can go and visit them. You know, if there's a really good reason. You know, imagine if you know the worst happened, we might need to go home." So then the answer was. Well, that's just in your imagination, it hasn't happened yet. You're going to spend all your time imagining things while you're in the forest meditating, when you're supposed to be meditating. If something really happens, we'll go and talk to Lumpur your teacher, and I'm sure he can sort it out. But don't spend all your time imagining things. And then he changed tack and said, well, what if we're on Tudong? you know, maybe you're walking, you've been walking many days and you get tired. Maybe you useful to have some money, then we could get a bus somewhere. Again, graph answer, well, what's the point of going on Tudong? You've got feet. If you're tired, you can still walk. If you've got no money, you can still walk. You don't need money. Then his final question was, well, there must be a few things, it would be more convenient if we had money, You wouldn't need to bother people if we just had money. And then the, uh, the other monk, the final kind of gruff answer was, so really the problem is you want to use money and have money. <coughs> is that why you ordain then? You just want to be someone with money. You don't want to follow the Vinaya, you don't want to follow the Buddha. And that was it, and That was the final question is, mm, yep. I'm ready to give up my money. And he said his first year at Wabupong was like this. He was often asking questions in a slightly in- innocent or even ignorant way but because he really wanted to know how the monks thought, how they practiced. And he said whether it's a junior monk or a senior monk, he always got very good at answers and became aware of how committed they were to the practice. We quote things like Lumpur Cha talked about how when he went to Lumpur Man's monastery on Tudong, before he started Wapupong, how he went there, and he felt that the Buddha Rupa, it was very beautiful. And someone asked him, said, "Well, this is lumpuman staying in the very, in the forest in a very small hermitage. It wasn't a big, you know, city monastery, well supported. Surely the Buddha Rupa, the Buddha statue, was very small?" He said, "Yes, it was very small. A very simple little shrine, a simple little wooden vihara for when there was meetings." But it was beautiful because of the way the monks related to it. The way they would bow, the way they would be very respectful and humble around the Buddha statue. To keep it clean, do the chores, always be very mindful and respectful when they're around the shrine. It made it beautiful in that sense. The respect for the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. That's what was beautiful. Your real beauty in the practice doesn't depend on the size of the Buddha statue, it's more about attitude and how you practice. Lumpur Cha's monks were, over time, became well-known for being um, committed to the practice. Some of them were more scholarly, some some of them had very, only a limited amount of knowledge of suttas, but in the end it's it's what you you make, what what use you make of the knowledge you have for the practice for understanding how to liberate the mind from kilesa. And some find it helpful to study a lot, remember a lot, and that can certainly help in teaching uh, help their contemplation, others less, but the purpose of the practice is always to bring the mind to perceive, understand the reality of this body and mind that we experience, you know, particularly bringing up mindfulness, present moment awareness. You know, when you practice Anapanasati, you don't necessarily need a lot of knowledge to do that, it's helpful to read the suttas, particularly the Anapanasati sutta and hear teachings. But in, in particular, the important thing is to learn to pay attention to the breath and use that meditation object, both to gain mindfulness, samadhi, and then to develop Satipatthana, to develop wisdom. Something as simple as the breath can teach you so much. You become aware of your in and out breaths. The more clear your mind is, the more clear the mindfulness, the clear comprehension, the less the sense of self, the less the emotional reactions that you're getting caught into or the mental proliferation that you're getting caught into. And you're bringing the mind just to see the basic truth. There is breath, breath in, breath out. But there's no person in that breath. There's no being person. It's just breath. just the air element. And the process of breathing is natural. It's just going on. But of course, because we do have attachment to the body and to our candas, five candas, even watching the breath can become something that brings up a sense of self. Often when we meditate, you'll notice sense of self forms around the breath, so it sometimes seems difficult just to breathe or to be with the breath. Sometimes we get tension or headaches. Sometimes the breath, the rhythm of the breath becomes an issue. You can see that sense of grasping, it's back to the sense of, back to the teaching of Paticca Sambubhada, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, even the breath, you can see how the mind clings, and that sense of self-ownership comes up just with the breath. You don't need a lot of background knowledge and study to do that. It's more about practical application to watching the breath, seeing how your mind reacts to it, what comes up, the different mind states, the the experience, and you gradually come to see breath is just breath. It's just air element. And what's the same for me will be the same for others. You know, it's just breath going in, breath going out but most of the time we're not with that we're with the mental proliferation the emotional reactions caused by craving attachment so over time the more the mind gives into craving and attachment this is what is leading on to birth with the phrase they always use in thailand is pop chart Becoming and birth. It's what we get used to. So we get used to cravings of desiring pleasure and rejecting pain, wanting things, not wanting things, satisfaction, dissatisfaction. We get so used to that that it becomes habitual, it comes ingrained into our consciousness, the conditioning of our consciousness. This is what is upadana. It's that clinging, and this forms our, our views on ourself, who we are, what we want, where we're going. It becomes karma, and bhava, we say becoming, or existences. It's what we get used to in our mind, how, how the mind experiences the world, experiences things. Ajahn Chah used to say, becoming, or bower, he used to compare it to somebody who owns a mango orchard. And the becoming is that, that's the sphere of their thinking. The craving, the clinging leads to this idea, this mango orchard is mine, it belongs to me, it's what's important to me. So then karma is made because you're always thinking about it, relating to it as yours. So then this sense of ownership, maybe defending it against people, protecting it, looking after it, loving it, hating when things go wrong, being excited when things go well. But all based around this mango orchard. That may be your sphere of becoming or the boundaries that you set your mind based on continuous craving and attachment, dana upadana, you get bhava, and this is the direct cause for birth. So maybe that person might actually be reborn in some form or other in that mango orchard when they die. But even before the physical birth, after death, it's the birth of the mind in the sense of becoming, is what determines the whole way of our being our personality what we identify with what's important in this case a mango orchard and this is something to investigate as you develop more mindfulness focus on the breath you can see how even sense of becoming comes up just in the regular habits of mind the thinking we have so what we take pleasure in if we're giving into craving regularly what we take pleasure in becomes a fixed view this is what i like this is what's good for me it could be food clothing certain possessions could be our kuti and then things out beyond the beyond the monastery our friends family we become we gain clinging and attachment based on repeated craving arising in the mind, identifying that, identifying with what we like, brings to view, this is right for me, good for me. Identifying with what we don't like, this is wrong, this is what I don't want. This, is, this process of craving, clinging, leading to becoming, you know, as long as we're not mindful, it keeps going on all the time affecting us. In the monastery, you can see how it often forms around very simple things. So Sometimes you, you have that clinging on to, say, a kuti, either I really like it, or this is really good, my space, this is my place, we don't want other people to invade it, maybe. Or sometimes the opposite. I hate my kuti. This kuti is too noisy or too cold, too damp, or something. Kuti is a very common sphere of becoming. That's just one example. You see how if there's strong strong craving, clinging, becoming, well how it conditions our behaviour, how we relate to other people. I remember once Numpur Liam, many years ago, he designed a new kind of kuti at Wapwapong. It's these round kutis, if you go there you'll see them made out of the concrete rings that they use for wells, usually in the ground. But you put them above ground and made these round kutis. And in the beginning they were quite popular because they had mosquito screens on the windows, which was a rarity. <clears throat> they had nice polished floors. So they became quite a, an attachment for some monks. There was one monk very attached to his kuti. He got, he got given one one of the round kutis and then of course he wouldn't let anyone else near it. That was his area, his sphere of becoming. And then he went away on Tudong for a while and came back. And while he was away, uh, a new western monk had been put into the kuti. So when he came back, he wasn't having that. So he moved the monk's possessions out, just moved it back in himself, because he had this automatic assumption, this is my kuti. And the Western monk coming along didn't really know what was going on. Tried to get into what had been assigned to him as his kuti. And then an argument ensued, this is my kuti, no it's not. And the lack of language, and cultural understanding didn't help. So in the end, it got so heated, the Thai monk raised, a, raised an arm to hit the other monk. The other monk raised an umbrella to protect himself. But It didn't go any beyond that. They both realized the intensity of their emotions and so they backed off, walked away. And luckily a senior monk later sorted it out. Well, this is the kind of craving, clinging, becoming that you, you find in, in daily life, whether you're in a monastery or out in the world. You know, It's what we're clinging on to, what we're becoming. This is where we're observing and learning from our experience. We have our background from what we've learned, we've heard, but now, as they say, it's the the battleground of the Kilesas, Sanam so Ropp. Yes, we have to learn to be mindful, mindful of our Vinaya, mindful of our meditation object and mindful of the Dhamma. So seeing an dukkha, Anatta in our experience, and this is what is the <coughs> cure for this process of craving, clinging, becoming, sets it into going in the opposite direction, as you interrupt the process of craving, clinging and becoming, the mind, as it were, is brought to a halt. And then we get abandoning, and then we get cessation. Cessation of becoming, cessation of clinging, cessation of craving. This is where liberation lies, whether it's just in a few moments calming your mind with the breath, when you have a strong emotional reaction to something, or over long period of time, repeatedly practicing, developing that sharp insight. As Lumpur Buddha Dasa said, this is the beginning and the end of the brahmacharya, the celibate life, the monk's life. Yes. It's understanding the suffering that arises from craving, clinging, becoming, but then doing something about it through the practice to bring an end to craving, clinging, becoming. It hinges on this one point in the development of mindfulness, clear comprehension, and addressing craving, clinging, becoming correctly, with wisdom, with understanding. You see, the more we practice this, the more clear our view is in, in line with the Dhamma then we get a lot more confidence in our own ability to practice. Even if we still have plenty of craving, clinging, becoming, affecting us. There's a certain understanding what we have to do with it. We know the right way to go, the right way to deal with it. And one gets a lot of confidence from that. Doesn't feel so lost or full of self-doubt we understand that this is is a method of practice that works. Maybe we just see it work in a few isolated instances first. But over time, we maybe see that coming up more often as we apply mindfulness and wisdom to our experience. Then we know for ourselves, oh, this does work. This is the right direction for freeing a human being from suffering. Tonight is the all-night sit, so we have plenty of opportunity to develop our meditation, sitting, walking, contemplating this, bringing up more mindfulness, bringing up patience. You You apply your mindfulness to your meditation object. It's not always easy or smooth or pleasant, so we need a lot of patience. And as you practice patience, and you notice, what did, what did Lumpur Chow mean by patience? This is another trademark quality of the monks that trained with him. The patient endurance doesn't mean just blindly sticking with something, blindly waiting. It means maintaining a wholesome state of mind as you endure through something, or as you wait, or as you apply yourself to the practice. So if you're dealing with some pain, or feelings of tiredness, or a restless mind state or some ill will or sleepiness, when we say practicing patience, endurance, it means actually maintaining a good attitude while you're enduring through these different mind states. there's many qualities we rely on in the practice, but tonight is a good opportunity to bring them up for the development of wholesome dhammas, the abandoning of the unwholesome dhammas. So I'll leave you with these teachings tonight.